children will have about an eighth of the carbon budget that their grandparents had. So think about how we would need to decarbonize for people to still live and hopefully live a better quality of life than their grandparents lived or, or their parents lived. Hello and welcome to the brand new series of the ZX Spectrum podcast where we take an intergenerational look at tech, media, the digital space and more. To kick things off in our first episode, Brandon and I interview Iggy Bassi from Servest, a platform that empowers smarter decisions and sustains Earth's natural capital, democratising science for a climate smart future. In the interview, Iggy sheds light on his powerful vision to use AI, data and intelligence in real time in the race against the accelerating climate crisis that's unfolding. Looking at the role of governments, farmers, insurers and companies and the rising expectations for all of us to put nature first. A hugely complex but urgent topic. Hello, welcome to the ZX Spectrum. My name's Lizzie Hodgson. And my name's Brandon Rowe. And this week we're delighted to say that we are joined by Servest founder Iggy Bassi. We'll learn a little bit more about Servest in a moment, but Iggy uh, created it because he was inspired firsthand from the experience of building a farm in Africa. And out there, there was a great deal of strain and resources and also, uh, crucially, the volatile climate. Passionate about AI's potential to improve lives, Iggy set out to build a platform, a quite astonishing platform, actually, that would empower smarter decisions and sustain Earth's natural capital. Iggy, welcome. Thank you very much. That is quite a, uh, that's quite a vision there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, thank you. Yes, I, I think it all started because I I was farming in West Africa, in Ghana, actually, and I think we, we suffered a fair bit from climate volatility. I think all the locals who knew farming for many, many decades obviously did, just did, did not see these patterns before. And we were a reasonably well-resourced farm. So at the end of the sort of project, when we sold the business, um, I asked myself the question, what could we do in climate change and how can we bring the power of AI and machine learning and how do we learn at scale? So where did the, where did the AI come into all this though? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think when we, again, when we sold the business, we were looking for technologies that could say, well, how, rather than supporting individual farms, can we, can we actually support a system? Can we think about climate, which then needs to percolate decisions made by large companies, governments, farmers, insurance companies, and credit companies? So we decided on looking at mathematics. We said, you know, what is the common language that could stretch across all these multiple sciences? Because we are essentially fusing multiple sciences together. We are looking at geology, we're looking at weather systems and earth systems and plant science. So you need a common denominator, and this is where mathematical approaches, particularly machine learning, made sense for us. And why that you that why you doing that? How what's your background around mathematics? And you know we know the universe is basically maths. So. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's because the universe is maths. We said if you're looking at system level problems, then mathematics has to be part of the answer. Now my particular um, life journey, I've sort of been in banking, consulting, but I also very early on in my um, career, I did set up a software company which taught me this, um, some of the rudimentaries around data analytics. So again, I wanted to combine something with technology because again, I think about scale. I think about the scale of the problem and I, think, I don't think we can do this without scalable technology. This is where AI, again, can reach across the aisle. I think digital platforms play an important and immense role in the welfare of farming, farming, but also climate. Can we, can we have different approaches to climate? 
We see a lot of technology which is on-farm orientated, and I think it's fantastic. I think they've done a great service. But I don't see system-level change, right? I mean, when we would, uh, very close to our farm were farms which source, uh, where lots of very famous chocolate companies source from, and they quite heavily teched up, right? So we said, but the affordability of tech across 500 million farmers is very, very complicated. And also, you don't find many large companies putting down huge amounts of technology on the farm. So again, we were looking at, can we combine the power of satellites with the power of mathematics, with the power of science, to say, can we look at entire systems? And essentially, most of our early R&D was focused around that. You know, can we think about, can we think about R&D at a scale which can fold in millions of hectares of land, not just a few hectares around individual farms. Because you can't optimize on a single farm when you're surrounded by a sea of pain. It's, it's not going to work for you long term. So when did, when did this actually all come together for you? What year was this? So I was living in Brazil in 2015, and towards the end of 2015, I set up something called Sylvest, which is a combination of Ceres, uh, the goddess of agriculture, and, har- and um, harvest. Um, that's where the word Sylvest <laughs> comes from. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then, but we started mainly with R&D. I was very fortunate. Um, I got introduced to some very um, in- interesting mathematicians, particularly at um, Imperial College. So the um, head of the machine learning and stats of Imperial College, Dr. Ben Calderhead, he joined the journey fairly on. He said, well, if you're going to solve this problem, then you need to quantify the uncertainty. Because we ultimately want people to make better decisions and more informed decisions. Um, but making decisions in the absence of quantifying uncertainty would be foolish. So he taught us very early on, how do we think about the mass quantification of uncertainty mm-hmm. at multiple scales? And when we mean scale, we mean something very specific. We mean not just what's happening this season, what's happening in this you know, um, sort of agronomic season, What's going to happen in the next 5, 10, 15 years? How do we start quantifying that into decisions? Because, again, if you're a wine farmer or if you're a large food company and you need to invest in machineries and factory, you need to take that long-term view. Now, how do you codify that into your investment decisions today? If you're a wine farmer and you want to change your genetic variety, for instance, you would need to think about the variety today and it'll take you five to seven years for that variety to come to fruition. So so these tend to be what we call multi-seasonal decisions. Um, Scale also to the extent of we didn't want to focus on a single country. Solving the climate issue through making better decisions is not a country level issue, it's a global level issue. So again, how do we make decisions at a planetary level which can then um, say, well, you know, we've learned something in Argentina, can we transfer that learning into, let's say, southern France, for instance? So part of our machine learning, there's a, there's a big aspect around what we call transfer learning. So where we can learn from what we call data-rich environment and transfer to data-poor environments. So where you're, are these models you're producing... See, they're mm-hmm. essentially models, and they're being built. Have they? Have you got the models working at the moment? They're in, or are you still testing them? You've got to a point where they can actually be utilised by companies. Yeah, that's a great question. So for the first couple of years, we've really built large data sets, and with those data sets, we knew we knew we needed certain data sets to model certain outcomes. So yeah. if you want to look at things like biological yields, if you want to look at weather systems you need to model these out over time. So the first couple of years, we're just building really individual models. And we're very fortunate we had a few early relationships with some large companies. They gave us certain problems that they had, either in certain geographies or for certain crops, or some persistent problems that they hadn't seen before. 
So that allowed us to build individual models and we apply mainly our sort of very clever algorithms over the last couple of years. But really what it's done is to try and perfect those algorithms so we can put all those models onto a singular platform and that's essentially what we're doing now. So, so when you, you're, you're, the platform is finished and sort of out there, um, who, who's going to be using it? Who, what's the use case for it and, and why would they be using it? Okay, so I think the platform is really geared towards um, decision makers, people who make everyday decisions. I always say to people, just as one sidebar, I always say to people, you know, we got to this situation with climate because we've made the billions and billions of the wrong decisions over the last 150 years, right? So if you want to make the right decisions, you have to inform every decision with a climate, what we call a climate signal. What is likely to happen over this time frame and to what degree of certainty do I have in that, in that forecast? So we have to make billions and billions of the right decisions, but we can't wait another 150 years. We just simply do not have that time. We need to um, collate as much information onto um, AI platforms like ours and really propagate everyone's decisions using climate signals. But we have to do it in the next 20, 30 years. And, and why is it so important to do it in the next 20, 30 years? I think, I think, uh, I think the urgency of the challenge is just immense, right? Yeah. I, I think the timeframes. I think even, I was very happy to see the UK government finally legally committing to net zero, for instance, recently. And yeah. I hope many other governments can follow, particularly the G7 countries, to set that trend. We are committed. And also, I think that the narrative has now changed. Uh, I remember starting this journey five, ten years ago. The whole concept of climate change was still fairly novel, it was on the fringes, and if you, even if you look at things like shareholder resolutions, there's only a 2 two to 3% of shareholder resolution had anything to do with sustainability or climate-related issues. I think we've seen a sea change, and I think that's, that's fantastic, um, because by mainstreaming the climate problem and converting it into a climate crisis, yeah. we can drive this action today, and that this is essential. So this, this thing, that the, the term climate crisis, I think, has been immensely um, powerful, actually, because when it's a you know, climate change, people tend to interpret, oh, it's going to get warmer, it's going to be this, you know, actually, it's not such a bad thing. When it's a crisis, yeah, right. things start to, you know, proverbially hot up. The, one of the, the, one of the well, I'm, I'm interested to hear, how do you, have you, have you had to spend time or less time, or are you still finding that you need to almost, you know, convince people that this is real? Is, that, is there still, I mean, we know that there are some governments in this world yeah. who aren't really that um, proactive <laughs> yeah. in, in addressing it. And there are also, you know, we've, we've got, I mean, we've got some governments that, that are, are tremendously good, but also corporations themselves. Right. Is that where we go? Do we go through the corporations to make this change? So I think that's a great question. And I think there are, there are really three things that are happening. I think there are three what we call convergence um, areas. One is just, just, there's just more disruption. So whether you believe in climate change is man-made or non-man-made, Look at the data. Something's happening. The Something evidence is, is there. The evidence is there. The body of evidence is changing all the time. It's, getting, it's becoming overwhelming. We have great science, scientific methodology to prove that trend. This is not, these are not just single events. These are trends. Right? So yeah. whether it's a heat wave from last year, the heat wave from this year, the contribution because of climate change is really, confound, is really compounding these issues. I think the second issue is consumers care. I think purchasers care. I think people who put their money into asset managers, they care as well. And I think the young generation should certainly care. If you look at the vast majority of purchasing and investment in the next 30, 40 years, they'll all come from young people. So they have a very, very powerful role to play and, and 
also a voice. I think there's a third area which I'm quite intrigued by. Over the last three to four years, we've seen this rising pressure for disclosure. Um, Suddenly we're seeing large companies being asked to disclose at a product level, what is your exposure to climate change, for instance. So with all these forces coming together, it's really compelling companies to rethink their relationship with nature. Now, they can do that from a competitive point of view, they can do it from a reactionary point of view, or they can put their head in the sands. But sooner or later, those three powerful convergences, disruption, consumer power, and regulation and disclosure will converge to drive that change. Hence, it is a crisis. So, you are, how, is, how is the climate crisis impacting the economy if you are going to be addressing those kinds of things? How, why does it matter? On one level, we understand it. You know, we're talking about humanity, we're talking about wildlife, we're talking about everything. And, that's and there's a, that's an that's a emotional, quite correct emotional feeling that we've got to do something. Mm-hmm. There's also a more pragmatic impact of this this is going to you know impact economies and all of these sort of things which actually will also have a negative impact on billions of people how does what you do help with that right so i think fundamentally we we see it comes down to the quality of decisions that either farmers governments policy makers or enterprises make um and when we talk to large companies, even the you know even multi-billion-dollar companies, we've been quite surprised on our journey at how little they can actually quantify risk and climate risk. So when you talk to uh, major food companies, for instance, we would have expected very advanced risk systems sitting there telling them what's likely to happen this season and multiple seasons. What we see is just a sea of chaos. There's a whole bunch of data chaos, and then even if they can overcome and they have very organized data. They don't have the scientific, you know, the sort of know-how. How do you read a climate model? So how they, do they don't know how to interrogate it. They don't know how to really no. organise it into a way that it makes sense in order to do something with it. And that something is to make real-time decisions. Yeah. So everyone makes decisions every single day in a large company. If you're in the procurement department or the risk department or if you're a large insurer or a credit company, you make decisions every single day. So how do you take the latest information of what's known, what is probable to happen, and what's the quantity um, uncertainty around that? If you can propagate that into your decision to the point you're making that decision, that would be very valuable to large companies, um, governments, farmers, and obviously the service providers like insurance companies and um, credit card. Oh, sorry, credit companies. Mm-hmm. So what you're offering is almost, I want to say, it sounds like a bit of a, it's not like a, 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 a magic crystal ball, no. but it's <laughs> but it's a it's less of a guesstimate kind of like we think we feel the data in the past has shown this, but actually yeah. you are talking real time. If you were to take this action, this point, we anticipate this might happen. Is it is it that granular or is it a little bit more? Uh, so let me, give you, let me give you a practical example. So we're working with one of the largest co-ops in Europe, and they were suffering fairly heavily last year in um, several major crops because of the heat wave. And what they discovered fairly soon is they couldn't source from their regular farmers, i.e. their sort of um, major members in their co-op, so they had to go to multiple countries to go and source their crop. What they discovered, this was a, what we call a synchronized shock. These crops were getting affected across all of Europe, not just in the, in the, in the countries where they source from. So this year what they've asked us to do is to look at seven major regions for them and say what's happening to those crops every single week. So every week we give them a dashboard that tells them 
this is what we expect you to produce at the end of the season, but we'll tell you every single week and we'll take all the latest um, assimilation of data, weather systems, radiation systems, put that into your forecast every single week. So you have a degree of confidence, so you can make an early decision. If something were to get disruptive, you could potentially make an earlier decision, you can make a different hedging decision, you can make a different insurance decision. Because they still need the certainty of that supply to produce our food. Right? Yeah. It's essential. So these are, these are not financial traders. These are people who need the physical um, stock to sort of produce the food that you and I eat. Are you seeing changes in, the work, in what pe- people are farming? Are you seeing changes in the crops they're, they're, they're going to be doing as a result of your data? Uh, at the moment, no. I would say I think systems generally are just gearing up towards how do we make our crops more resilient over time. So there's a whole movement around climate smart agriculture. How do we think about soils? How do we think about biodiversity? How do we calibrate the various genetic makeup to suit the future climate? So part of our platform will be used to say what's the what's the probability of you know, southern France, let's say, going through a two-degree change and what's going to happen to maize, what's going to happen to large mm-hmm. land parcels. Then with those simulations, we can say to the seed companies, this is how you need to perfect your seed for those types of geographies, right? By looking at many, many, many millions of fields, then you can start saying, well, I've already seen this field at um, two degrees and at three degrees. What, what actually happened there in terms of biological um, yield? What happens in terms of pest control? What, what happened in terms of energy and water consumption? Those right. ripple effects. Yeah, and then you can say then, is this likely to affect you in the same way, in a slightly different way? And this is where the power of machine learning and really statistical analysis really comes in. So with the machine learning, how, how, who's doing this? Who's, who's doing the machine learning? Who's building this? And where, where is the... Um, I think increasingly people are understanding the idea of what AI does yeah. but I think that there's a disconnect with how it does it Right, so I think, I think ultimately we have great scientists right? Um, I think we founded on research, we continue to do lots of research and we continue to employ some very brilliant scientists I think we probably over-index on what we call statistical scientists, and we're now bringing in more um, domain experts. Um, so we've had uh, NIAB, which is a national institute for um, agronomic botany, have just invested in us as well. Over a statistical framework, we are bringing in more and more domain knowledge. So whether it's agronomic, climate models, land movements, land use changes. So over time, we can, we can take our statistical know-how because we are extremely good at quantifying risk, but we need more domain knowledge. Then we need to be able to answer questions like uh, what is likely to happen to East Anglian water, for instance, in the next 15, 20 years, and how does that impact my sourcing strategy? So this is a hugely powerful and important product, really. I mean, this is, I've not, I've not, I'm not yeah. familiar with this, this mm-hmm. particular world, but this seems to me one of the most exciting but also crucial pieces of work, whatever it is you want to call it, that, that possibly we, we need right now. I, I, listen, I, th- I, I think there's many people trying to model this different part of climate, looking either at farming systems or earth systems or sort of weather pattern systems. We saying, can we bring elements of these together and unify them in a way that can support actual everyday decisions, right? Because I think the challenge with academic research, it doesn't get translated to everyday yeah. decisions. We find that a lot. So when we're doing even re- research around stuff or... Um, you know, the work that Brandon and I do, there's a lot of stuff that you try to get the academic 
kind of like intel behind it and it's very very difficult yep. to get and it's also very diff- it's expensive as well right. to, to get it and it's also difficult to make sense of it and and it, this to me is you are making sense of a lot of academic insight scientific insight you are making sense of it and bringing it into the kind of pragmatic part that people and organizations and corporations and certainly governments require which is quite a quite a massive thing it is massive. That's why it's sort of taken us three and a half years so far. And I think we're probably another three and a half years out before we can truly answer, begin to answer questions like, what should I do over yeah. time? Because I think it's very easy for companies to use a whole bunch of systems to say, well, what is happening right now? Whether you're using GIS or drone imagery or whatnot. What is happening right now? I think we have the technology. I think there's a lot of people that can solve that problem. You know, when is something going to happen? What is my impact? But ultimately, what should I do? Because it's the what should I do, which I think where governments need the most amount of help. Um, for instance, should we be subsidizing uh, water? Should we be thinking about irrigation? Should we be thinking about canopy cover? Should we be subsidizing insurance companies? Because some insurance companies have now said, we cannot insure everyone, every process in any geography. It's just, we, can't, we have to be more selective because they are getting uh, some pretty large payout ratios over the last couple of years. So who's gonna? So would you would you do business activity without insurance in the future? So I mean, that's, we, we, that's something that we've seen very much in in the UK in the last couple of years. With we've, we've had lots of floods. We've had you know hundreds, if not thousands, of homes have been I destroyed mean, as yeah, a result. Yeah, I mean, like in the heat wave, just like a few a few weeks ago, the one that we've just come out of, it was like just up the road from me, there was a huge sort of forest fire that spread over the entirety of where I live. Um, and I can only imagine, you know, trying to ensure that, uh, or you know, you know, right. sort of like playing with risks. Um, and at the end of the day, I guess insurance companies are there to make money, and uh, the more and more it costs them, yeah, you know, the dangerous it, it it can become. Yes, but I think insurance companies are also they they need to grow their business, yeah, right. So so they still need insurable assets. Right. And this is where they too need to get smart in terms of, well, how should we adapt? Surely the insurance companies, it's in their interest to work with their clients to talk through what is the best adaptation pathway for you? But how do they get that? How, you know, and, and, and how does that permeate the decisions that large companies, where they put the factories or where governments help or where people grow their crops, for instance? All that has to be modeled out in a way to say, yes, we are, we are statistically sure that if you take these adaptations, the probability of an extreme event is still going to be probably high, but your ability to withstand that is likely to be better. We're not saying you can solve extreme events because extreme events will just continue rising because we all, we've already got too much carbon in the system. So expect volatility. So is this all around managing that the impact of the volatility, not actually about we can't necessarily stop the trajectory we're on we may be able to in time slow it but this is about managing the reality that we're in i think that i think that bill gates said it best last year he said the world better start adapting to a, a to a hotter world and i think this is what we need to do so do we have the tools and the innovation of course long term we want people to adapt and start thinking about how do we take out carbon from the system right how, how do we think about different farming how do we price externalities because we got to this situation of volatility because we hadn't priced nature. We thought it's always going to be there for us. Of course. Well, nature's, <laughs> nature's proving that that is not going to happen, isn't it, really? Yes, and nature's under, I don't know, was, it, was it Neil deGrasse Tyson who said, nature's under no obligation to make sense to us. 
we have to make sense and now it's biting back. So we have to, but we have the tools, we have the mathematics, we have the science. So we, if we can peek into the black hole, you know, surely we can figure out how to change the needle on climate change. So do you, are you seeing this in time going to be applied to, you know, more areas? So you've got the, you know, you're doing food securities, insurance, economy, impacts. Is there other places that you can see this actually would be hugely valuable? Um, I think right now we're very focused on looking at the food, agricultural sector, the beverage sector, but also then the related services like insurance and credit over those sectors. Um, Of course, we want our platform to support as many climate smart decisions as possible. So, I mean, if we can partner with other groups that can help us into other verticals, we're more than happy to do that. We do want to reach a time, it'll probably take us another three or four years, where people can self-serve on this digital platform. Mm-hmm. They can say, well, I live in this area, what does my world look like at two degrees and at three degrees? I grow this crop, or I'm thinking about setting up this factory in this location. Because, and this is why we spend a huge amount of time quantifying risk and just getting large data sets and we're looking at probabilistic outcomes. And then we'll create, obviously, a best case, a worst case, a sort of a base case, or a do-nothing case, which are, yeah, of course, quite scary. <laughs> which would be terrifying. Yes. Do you think people's, uh, you know, when you've got a platform like this eventually, do you think it will help in people's perceptions of really the damage that's happening? Um, I think, again, we focus on decision makers who need to make decisions. We, as much as possible, we try to align their incentives. At the mm. end of the day, people will respond to incentives, right? yeah. it's, whether it's fear or greed. You know, if you say to companies you're going to lose $100 million worth of your sort of coffee because you can no longer source coffee from Costa Rica or from Brazil, from these particular geographies, then I think people change fairly quickly. If you just say there's a problem, there's a problem, there's a problem, and not offer solutions, I think that's problematic. Yeah. Right? I think people know there's a problem, and I think what people are doing, I think they're feeling rather paralyzed to say, well, there's a problem, but what, what decisions can I make to make yeah. it better? I think this, this, we very much see that being pushed into the um, kind of like general public narrative now. Like we know this is, there is something very, very wrong. What can we do about it? Right. And we see that being pushed through, particularly with young people. We see the, you know, people, young people are taken to the streets sure. around. We need something to happen with this. And it is around coming up with solutions. We need to find solutions to these things. Right. But we only can do that once we know what the real challenges are. And right. make those solutions, you know, right. appropriate for the for the challenges that we see. So, thinking around, you know, that very thing around young people. Why why does all this matter to them? <laughs> I mean, it's really obvious. But what for you? Why does it matter on a personal and and, and also professional level? As I tell my daughters every day, this is your future, right? So we we work. So we hope that future generations will have better outcomes, right? I actually read a scary report recently that said. Um, um, children will have about an eighth of the carbon budget that their grandparents had. So think about how we would need to decarbonize for people to still live and hopefully live a better quality of life than their grandparents lived or, or their parents lived. But I think, that, I think also this is culminating at a chi- um, time when people have unprecedented opportunities to sort of travel, work in different countries. There's great new opportunities and threats with new technology. But climate is a game changer. Climate is a sort of a, a you know a fairly significant threat to young people in yeah. terms of your livelihoods, in terms of how you think about future travel, how you think about the future of work, the future of your family. Should you have a family? Should you have a big family, a small family? 
these are all very, very big decisions. So I think the younger, younger generation, I'm glad they're hitting the streets. I don't think it provides a solution, but I think it keeps it as a crisis. It creates the consciousness around this is a major problem. Yeah, I think we're seeing, um, as a young person myself, is there's this sudden sort of realization, I think, that maybe one of the most important things that are, that are actually around is the planet that we, we sort of live on, because it doesn't really matter. Um, there's only one. What thing. Yeah, there's only us. You know, maybe Elon Musk will take us to Mars. <laughs> um, but even then, I don't think Mars is going to be very nice to live on. Um, and so it's, it's that matter of, you know, I, I see that we're, we've only got sort of one shot with this, with this planet. Um, and I think now, for whatever reason, yeah. young people are, are, are picking up on the fact that maybe this is one of the most important things ever. Um, and, you know, I think at the moment there's this, in the media, there's this common misconception that, oh, it's just like a, a phase, it's just like, you know, you know, people go out for strikes and sure. then it, it, you know, yeah. it, it ends after a few years or whatever. But I actually don't think this generation of people will give up. No, I, I, th- I agree with you, Brandon. I think that what we've seen with, obviously, Brandon and I work with young people a lot, mm. and my friend's children you know one of them's just signed up to work with extinction rebellion and the conversation that they're having in their peer groups yeah. and it's not that they are you know they're not you know some radical political you know human beings they're just simply this is we are inheriting this right. i often say this you know we have created our generation and above we've created this that, that they're inheriting mm-hmm. they're inheriting it and I would, I have absolutely, they should be outraged with what's happening because the, everything is changing, and it, they are going to have to be the ones that actually sort it out. But we, our generation, the older generations, we have a responsibility to educate them, empower them, skill them up in order to find those solutions. Right. And I think that's the narrative that's coming through clearly from young people. Help us, but you've also got to do your bit as well. You've got to start taking this seriously for our generation um so i think it's i think it's exciting is possibly the wrong word Mm -hmm. but there is a momentum behind this i think it's different to sort of younger generations and let's say the 60s or sort of early generation in the 70s where people were fighting for rights I don't think this is this is a right. I think it's just a bigger threat level than just a right. I want this is going to kill us. Yeah, (laughs) this is a this is. Well, it can certainly bring and inflict a huge amount of harm. I mean, if we allow, you know, carbon, if we didn't have a carbon strategy, you know, we would get hotter very fast and, you know, systems may collapse and migration patterns will radically change, right? And then what does that mean for opportunities for the future? Again, you know, we all strive for our children to have a better quality of life. What would that look like if we didn't have these strategies? So I think... I think the younger generations are technological savvy, they're more data. I just imagine the data that my yeah. daughters have today at, at such a young age. So they are, I think they understand the problem. I don't, you know, I think young, younger generations have a deep understanding of these problems. I don't think it's, uh, it should be taken superficially by politicians. Yeah, and I, th- I think it, the, the great thing about what, from what I've seen from what you're doing with Sylvester is that, you know, for us, as a young generation, it's very easy for us to go, oh, we need to change this, we need to change this. But we don't yet have those solutions of what to do it. And the fact that you're, you know, able to provide data um, to, at the end of the day, the large governments and companies that 
are actually the ones that are, that need to be changing um, because I think in a way consumer consumer behaviour I think is changing a lot more to being uh, sustainable and that's where your power is yeah um, and but you know it really takes I think company like you companies like yours to really understand you know what's going on um, and and inform the people that can actually make the big decisions and that's you know, unfortunately, you know, maybe unfortunately at the moment for, you know, our young generations, we're not the people that can actually make those changes within the companies. You know, we don't sit on the boards. We don't, you know, hold the executive positions. Um, so it's like, you know, I see Sylvester's doing very well in bridging and, and building sort of understanding for the mm-hmm. older generation that maybe doesn't quite capture it. Yeah, I think that's right. But I mean, we do also have lots of young people here. Yeah, yeah no, I'm not saying you, but I'm saying <laughs> we have we have some brilliant young scientists. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, as an organisation and kind of like as a, corp- a company, could you are taking the methodology that young people understand and yeah. using the language they understand to tackle or to educate or to inform or whatever it is yeah. the organisations that need to be making the change. So in that way, you are yeah, a bridge. These, right. These big organisations are usually ran by the older generations sure. that you know don't necessarily hire young people like you guys do. With regards to that, what how does your what is the skew of young to not not it's older? Just, you know. <laughs> uh, well, there's certainly uh, yeah, we sort of brought in people uh, from from Google and so in in their forties, uh, but most of our scientists are actually in their twenties. Yeah, um, so they tend to be. Brilliant mathematicians um, with sort of PhDs or master's level, um, and they and they tend to be very passionate. I think everyone who's joined the business is joined because it's what we call a mission-driven business. They actually want to co-solve the problem. I think any one of them could pretty much walk into Google tomorrow or to Uber or sort of places like that. But again, it's that alignment of mission. And actually, I've actually gone one step further, and I've made sure that our capital structure is also aligned long-term to our mission. So I've only brought on what they call deep tech meets nature investors, right? Yeah. That's a brand new category. So again, it just spells out that there is a market crying out for to, to help companies like ours who are married to a big climate mission, but who use technology um, to get there. So I read a report by, do you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Dot Everyone, um, a report came up to, came out two or three months ago, and it was, it was looking at um, people who are working on AI products um, in the UK and a huge 58% of them said that they were not comfortable with the products that they were creating because they thought they were going to have a negative impact on society Mm -hmm. and of which 21% actually have left their jobs as a result. I think there's this understanding, you know, the AI and tech for good yeah. is certainly something that I'm seeing coming through with younger generations, the younger people coming into. Not everyone, obviously, sure. yeah. but this is something that I think when you can do, you can do tech for good and business for good. Mm-hmm. And I think that people often confuse doing something that is actually going to have a positive impact on the world yeah. has to be somehow a, a do-gooder or you know it, it's yeah. it's somehow you lesser. You can't make yeah. money, and and this again is is proving that that's not the case. Yeah, but the, and I think there's a, a much broader spectrum of AI, machine learning, but which is both you know focused on maximizing returns and maximizing outcomes and maximizing you know impact. I think there's a broad spectrum for young people to choose from. 
Uh, but I think that's just the nature of these technologies. I think it, it is replacing some of the old traditional industries. I mean, even we're seeing like insurance tech and fintech and health tech and all sorts of tech. We're trying to say, well, is it a climate tech? Because that is actually the, a much bigger problem, right? Yeah. Um, and we, you know, we are seeing some very pioneering, there's some brilliant companies coming out of the States, for instance, that are also trying to look at, can we do systems level? Because it's recognizing this is a systemic problem. This is not a, a field level problem only or a country level problem. It's all interconnected. Trade is interconnected, right? You don't know how much of the world's carbon gets, gets traded as well through you know, physical supply of products, you know. So when we import, we're also importing someone else's natural capital. Right. So yeah. thinking about that at a system level um, and then you know, making sure that decisions that companies and governments make and take that into account, I think is really important. And looking back, kind of going back to your own company with around the values that when you're you know, looking at your value, obviously your product itself is tremendously important. Do you then drill those any values through into your workforce? Yeah, we do, but just just go back on the product. The product in in and of itself doesn't have a moral compass. No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying <laughs> is, it ha- but it has a, it has a. Um, it can be used for the right purpose. For the right purpose. Yeah, right. That's maybe that's the right word. Is it has a purpose. Yes. But it has a purpose that I think is very much in the kind of the general understanding that this isn't just oh you know it's not a you're not making a widget to sell a million of those a week and we're going to you know ship them off from China it's not that kind of thing this has a a purpose and I think that there is something interesting around that that as a big AI platform Mm -hmm. it is different from the other things that we are aware of and or that we've heard of and I just wonder whether that you know that the, you've already spoken though at the beginning that you know you saw that there were these things happening and that you felt that you could do things better and there is there is a definite mm-hmm. purpose and oh, absolutely. to that yeah. and do those get reflected in? Yeah, we're also um, striving to become a B Corp mission in quarter four this 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 year. Um, so again, that mission is permeated in the way we um, hire people, the way we interview people because we really look for that mission. Are you just joining because you're brilliant or because you're brilliant and you want to solve a problem? Yeah. Right. So we want people who are brilliant and who want to solve a problem. So the way, the way the science team works across product, the way we send our young scientists out to meet large, large um, companies, for instance, right? We make sure that the internal culture reflects what it is we're trying to solve, right? So we don't have... It's, it's a very flat organisation. I mean, this is also a question that... I'm not saying that you have the answers to this, so please don't panic. I'm passionate about getting women into yeah. sciences and technology in particular. It's a big problem. Um, and I know that, you know, you are, as an organisation, you're obviously open to diverse. Are you finding it a struggle to find young talented female scientists and I'm not saying again this isn't your fault which yeah. is <laughs> you know where, where could, how can we how could that be improved because the right. world in which they occupy we all occupy a world that's I just think there's slightly more females in the world than males anyway but we yeah, have to find is. that you know we've got to when we're creating this stuff we've got to create stuff that's for everyone and if to do that it means you have to have a diverse workforce that's right, and I think we put a we put a plan into place recently to reach out. So we recognised that we had to change our language. We had to change the way that we spoke to the jobs, and suddenly we've had an influx of some brilliant. So we've just made offers actually uh, to a whole bunch of female scientists. So one out of New York. I think we have to f- we have to look further for them than we do because again they don't naturally um, apply. I think there's shortage within STEM subjects, and I think. 
we're slightly um, hindered in the fact that statistical science is heavily dominated by, by men. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. So even though our sort of professors from the Alan Turing Institute and Imperial, they have, we, every summer we reach out to try and find female students and we may get one or two for summer projects. Which is, I'm on the, um, the um, industrial advisory board for the University of Kent School of Computing mm-hmm. and it's something that is really important. It actually comes from them onboarding and being attractive to women as yeah. well but it also starts in school and it starts in the media and it starts so far back so it's Sorry. it's i think it's a it's a, um, a it's a challenge that we all have to take our own little part in doing Sorry. but it's getting them young enough to feel that they are they will have a place at the table to do it and hopefully you know we'll see some things change Absolutely, and we we actually go a bit further. We we've now set up a uh, a joint um, CDT, which is a PhD program, so an industrial PhD program between Oxford and Imperial, and we're just about to encourage another girl to go through that program. To, um, so I think we need to work harder and slightly more differently. I don't think you can just wait for the resume no. to fall in. I think that's just not going to work. We, yeah. Everybody has a responsibility. Well, we, we in our work, we're always like because um, we've sort of work in production and it's. It's mm. you know extremely not not very diverse, um, but it can be very diverse. Uh, we found that if you go out and you're looking for them and you're you, you just have to put in that extra effort, um, and I think it's quite clear that you guys put in the extra effort to make sure you've got sort of a, a diverse workforce. But also, it also just brings a different perspective. Yeah, yeah that's the key thing. Last week we 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 we've been in discussions with this brilliant scientist from Cambridge, and she. She came in with the first half an hour. She's given us two or three just fantastic ideas we just had not thought about. <laughs> yeah. right? So having that diversity and those different perspectives is just critical to us. And um, it's, as we're trying to solve this big problem. Right? And it's exciting as well because if you feel that you you are part of a you know a bigger mix of people and just learning from different experiences and having yeah. those different ideas. Otherwise, if you all work in your own... If everyone looks the same as you and behaves the same as you right. and is the same as you, you're never yeah. going to break anything new. You're never going to find those new ideas. It's an exciting time. Yeah. And, and I think more and more organisations are actually crying out. They want to onboard diversity. They right. want to have that as part of their it's part of their values and not necessarily just because it's you know great for the bottom line, which is proven it's True. great for the bottom line. Right. But right. it's also... Going back to young people, um, there is an expectation to have that in mm. place. Be be the be the a reflection of the world that I occupy, and the world they occupy is is global. They don't they Absolutely. don't have you know it's it's no longer kind of like the, the they don't operate in borders anymore. It's like if I was going for a job and I went into an office and it was all men, I think I'd walk back out again. Um, Same here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, because it's just. Yeah, and it's and this generation of young people are incredibly diverse, um, yeah. and it's you know the statistic that I always find funny with uh, Trump in America is that uh, less than fifty percent of our generation are white, um, so there's no longer an over fifty percent sort of majority of white people in America within the youth, um, so in a you know in ten years time they're going to be waiting. Uh, sort of making up the, the workforce and the buying and the power. I think that one of the other things we, we're just discussing with the board now is to create an innovation council. Mm-hmm. And that council will be, you know, we can, we can 
we can look heavily within the scientific community with the climate fraternity uh, for female scientists to, to join that advisory committee. So these are, these, these are women who have got you know, decades of experience, they're, they're pioneering researchers, they're critical thinkers. You know, rather than looking at the talent that's coming in at our college and university, we, we think we're interested in a broader pool of talent. I think that's an excellent yeah, idea. So that's something. I think that's, a, <laughs> I think that's a, a great idea. Iggy, thank you so, so much. Thank Have you. you enjoyed this? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, really, really inspiring, actually, as well. To, and, yeah, and, and, and giving me a lot of optimism yeah. that those companies doing stuff. I do I'm have sure one. I do have nice. one. Are you sure. optimistic? Am I optimistic? I, I, th I think that what they call an impatient optimist. Right? So I want change, but I want it fast. Yeah. But obviously, I'm optimistic. I, mean, I actually wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't think we could move the needle on something to do with climate change. And for us, it's really, can people start making better decisions? Can they personalize climate in a way that is just so impersonal today? And I think, very optimistic that we can do that. Iggy, thank you so much. Um, you. I'd love to learn more about this journey as you go on. Yeah. Where can people find you? Where can people find out about your company? Uh, well, I'm afraid we have a very conventional web page. It's just www.sylvest.earth and at our Such Twitter handle is <laughs> SylvestEarth. Your and Twitter handle is? SylvestEarth. Great. Thank you so much. Um, Brandon, thank you very much. Thank you, Lizzie. And that's it. Catch you next time. If you like this episode, please rate, follow and share. Next time on the ZX Spectrum... For me, activism often intersects with campaigning and um, a lot of it relies on, on simply who you are, what you see around you and how you want the world to see other people. Because it's not just about the injustices you face, but it's about the injustices other people face. That You, you have the privilege to change that. The ZX Spectrum podcast is a Studio B production.